right, I want to turn over to the book of Titus again this evening. The book of Titus chapter number 1. We're looking at the last two verses one last time. I think one last time. I say that sometimes and then we don't get as far as I think. If you would stand to your feet out of respect for the reading of the Word of God and that will also hopefully let the blood circulate a little bit, wake us up on this evening. Begin verse number 15. He tells Titus this, that unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. Father, as we concern ourselves with the matter of this text. It seems that in our society today it is a given among many that the balance of good and evil is part of our salvation. That man must do something good if he expects to be recognized as good by God. Lord, I pray that you would help us tonight to see the error of this and that we might be committed to looking to the Lord Jesus Christ alone for grace. I pray now that you would bless the preaching of thy word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. I closed last week reminding you that there's at least a couple of truths that we need to acknowledge. And uh, uh, one of them, of course, is that true righteousness is inward. Uh, We looked at that as Jesus was talking about it's not what goes into the man that defiles him, but it is what comes out of the man and that it it begins in the heart. Secondly, that inward righteousness produces outward righteousness, not the other way around. Outward righteousness doesn't produce inward righteousness. Outward good deeds do not purify our hearts. But inward righteousness that is given to us by imputation from the Lord Jesus Christ naturally results in outward godly practices. We talked a little bit about the practice of abstinence in the form of asceticism last week and how asceticism is a form of severe discipline and avoidance of maybe all forms of pleasure in order to maybe get us to a higher spiritual plane. And I left off on that thought. And so I wanted to pick up there and remind you that there are in fact times that you and I ought to step away from the daily grind to meditate and to pray, maybe to give ourselves to a course of study in the Scripture with more intensity Uh, to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't do that with with the noise of the world oftentimes as effectively... Um, In fact, this coming Lord's Day morning, we're looking at the passage in Mark where Jesus went out to a solitary place early in the morning before the sun was even up to be alone and to pray. So Jesus Christ practiced a form of asceticism for a very temporary amount of time. And we're taught this in at least two places how we are to do it apart from where Jesus was 
explaining it. One is where Paul was reminding the church, and you may remember the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse number 5, where Paul is talking about how a husband and a wife should be treating themselves in their conjugal duties. If you don't know that word, you can Google it. You can explain it to your children later, later but um, how they need to be fair and equitable and giving to one another and um, that they should not separate from one another for long periods of time because it can put a temptation on one of the parties or both of the parties that's unnecessary. Here's what the text says, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent and for a time, that ye may give yourself to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So in other words, during this time of separation, make sure it is limited. And this is, this is wonderful advice from the Apostle Paul on this. And he says, but if a husband and wife are going to separate in their conjugal duties from one another, let it be because you have agreed together to give yourself to fasting and prayer. That this would be the thing that you would focus on. Now in another place, if you go to Matthew chapter number 6, we read where Jesus tells us how we ought to be performing this duty of setting ourselves apart for a period of time, if you will. And in this particular one, it's, it concerns fasting. It's in verse 16, Matthew 6, 16. He says, Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a, of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. So there was a group of people that when they fasted, they wanted everybody to know they were fasting. It's like the folks that would pray wanted everybody to know they were praying, and they would stand on a street corner, and they would, Oh, Lord, you know, and they would pray where everybody could see them praying. And, of course, there's, there's a huge leaning in the, in the Scriptures to press us to let our duties of piety not result in a pat on the back. Sometimes somebody does something and I, I see these people that give to charities many times and the charity honors them and names a building after them and you know, oh, they're so wonderful, they've done this. And Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what the left hand's doing. In other words, let your giving and your, your benevolence be so quiet that even your hands get confused as to what was just given. That it means so little to you that as far as trying to get praise and attention that why you, your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand's doing. That's how low-key our ministering ought to be. Um, I've told you the story of a church that I was in one time and a fellow bragged on the flowers and, and the preacher bragged on the flowers and somebody had worked on the church bus and didn't get mentioned from the pulpit and he left the church angry. And refused to come back because the preacher didn't say, oh, and also old Bill there who worked on the church bus, by the way, he's a good guy too. But no, the flowers were awesome and he never mentioned, and so the guy left. Well, he did that work for the wrong reason. Now, admittedly, I don't know why the preacher was making a big deal over the flowers. Oh, look at these pretty flowers. Maybe they had a flower committee, Sister Eda. I remember when I got here, I think there was a committee for almost everything at one point. And, uh, and, and fortunately... We, we, we've kind of grown beyond that where we don't feel like we need a committee to know 
you know, if it's two-ply toilet paper or one-ply toilet paper in the bathroom. And, uh, and I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the maturity that is, that is being shown among the believers here over so many things. And, uh, but here he's telling them, don't, don't, don't be like these hypocrites when you fast. Don't do it. Uh, he says, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. If they get recognized here, their reward's here, not in heaven. They get a pat on the back, that's all they're going to get for eternity. He says, but thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face. Look like you're getting ready to go out for a day of work. Get up just like you would on a normal day and prepare yourself for the duties of the day. That thou may appear unto men, not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. Let it be a heart matter. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So, what do we learn from these passages? There are times that we may lay aside some form of physical pleasure for a spiritual pursuit. But it should not be 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, always abstaining from these things, but it's done for limited amounts of time for growth. To do it in another way, in any other way, would kind of turn God's intentions on their head. And I'll explain it to you. This is, this is seen, we, we see this in our society today, among many people in the world, where they'll restrict themselves from certain foods in order to lose weight. They'll say, I'm going to forego the pleasure of eating something because I need to take a few pounds off. I've done it myself. And, uh, and not that the foods that you were eating were necessarily evil foods. But I want to accomplish something that's going to be better for me in the long run. I want to preserve my knees or I, you know, I want to preserve my heart health or, or whatever. So I'm, I'm going to abstain. I'm going to step back. So we do those things and we don't think anything about abstaining for something like that. If you tell somebody, oh, no, I'm not going to have the dessert today because I'm trying to lose a few pounds... Nobody thinks a thing about it. But if somebody finds out that you're fasting, oh, you're one of those, you're fasting. Oh, what? You and you aren't eating food? How awful that you're in a religion that would tell you you can't eat food. My religion didn't tell me I can't eat food. This is a decision, like nobody told me I had to stop eating a dessert. Well, I mean, my wife might mention it, but nobody told me I had to. There's nothing like that. That's why we shouldn't make a big deal out of it. We don't walk around wearing our, our fasting and our prayers on our sleeves so everybody can see it. So if you choose, let's say, to lay aside the TV or the internet for a time of prayer and meditation, that would not be unwise in the least. There would be wisdom in doing something like that, saying, you know what, I'm going to put this stuff aside for a while because it's distracting me. I find myself getting up in the morning, the first thing I do is I turn on the radio to catch the news instead of going ahead and getting God's Word and reading it and applying myself to meditating upon it and going to the Lord in prayer. The error can come, one of the errors can come when you begin to judge others who aren't doing the same things you're doing to restrict yourself or they're not doing it as long or as intense as you are. And many times we just have a tendency to look at others and judge them in this aspect. And here's where the error can begin. You lay aside spiritual or material pleasure and you assume that the material pleasure is obviously impure within itself 
Because it's the thing that was keeping you from being right with God. When the truth of the matter is, the material pleasure may have been something that God has made that is in fact declared good by Him. So good in fact, such as marriage, He declared it a good thing. And yet, there are those groups in the world that would lay it aside and say we are more pure by not being married. Paul confronted this error and we studied it closely a couple of years back when we were in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Go back uh, a couple of books to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and you remember the passage. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. It's often used to beat Roman Catholics over the head, but I assure you, Baptists are guilty of it too. Just They just put different things in its place many times. But 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse number 1, here's what it says. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. That means the Spirit is making it very clear. There's no question about it as to what the Spirit is saying. That in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devil. He said very clearly the Spirit has revealed this. Now we know that at one point the Spirit revealed through Paul to the elders of the church of Ephesus, Pastor Josh reminded of this this past Lord's Day, where he told them there will be wolves raised up among some of you in the church. There's going to be some preachers that are going to end up being wolves in the church. And so Pastor Josh pointed out in that message that Therefore, probably those folks at Ephesus were real careful to watch for that since they were told, hey, the Spirit of God has said there's going to be some wolves among your own ranks. And they're like, we have got to set up some safeguards. And they did a great job at it. They were really watching out for that. And God commended them for that. Which is, I think, just wonderful. Well, he says here the Spirit is clearly saying that in the latter time, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Those are two big deals. We, we, we went over them in detail uh, a couple years back. But here's what they'll be doing. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. Saying one thing and doing another. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Not bothered by it. Their conscience is just not going to bother them. They're not going to care. Have you ever seen somebody talking about some sin that they're involved in, some direct transgression of the Word of God, and they're laughing about it? <laughs> I know, you know. <laughs> you know, it's just funny to them. Or they speak to it as though it's just part of their culture. It's just who we are. It's just what we do. No, no, the Word of God forbids it. Yeah, yeah but I know. Well, they have their conscience seared with a hot iron. It doesn't mean anything to them. And here's some of the things that they would do. They would forbid to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. Which he says, by the way, God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. He said if somebody believes, has repented, and believe the gospel, they're believers, and they know the truth, they can receive it with thanksgiving and that's what they ought to be doing. And then he goes further in his explanation and notice this, he says, for every creature of God, notice, is good. All these things that God has created that He's declared good are actually good. And nothing to be refused. You don't put this stuff aside. Because God's created it. It's all good. Don't refuse it if it be received with thanksgiving. And then notice this. For it. What's, what is it in this text? Well, the creatures of God that He's created, they're good. For it is sanctified. 
it is literally made morally pure. It's a, it's a morally pure thing to participate in this. How's, that, how's it made that way? By the Word of God. The Word of God gives us understanding. Go to the book of Proverbs. You read that wisdom and, and knowledge, these are two very important things that we gain from the Word of God. So we can go to the Word of God and we see that these things that God has created that are good are actually sanctified. They're consecrated by the Word of God as good. God has marked them. They're good things. By the Word of God and prayer. And I think many times we kind of read over this and maybe skip it. The Word of God makes it clear material things really aren't our problem. Jesus makes it clear that it was not the outside of the things which defile us. It's the heart which would misuse these things. Our heart which would grasp something and either say, I'm holy for grasping it, or we would reject it and say, I'm holy for rejecting it. And I believe 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 5 is a strong biblical support for giving thanks before meals. Now this is a little bit of a digression, a rabbit trail if you will. It was the obvious practice of, of our Lord to pray before He ate. But here He tells us, these things are good and don't refuse them if they be received with thanksgiving. So let us pray and know that this is a good thing for us to do. Now, um, back to what we were talking about. If I, if I go around acting like things are evil that God has clearly made for good, then I turn God's purposes upside down. And it proves to be a greater spiritual good for us to benefit from the good things that God has given us by embracing them with a spirit of thankfulness and using them for the glory of God in a way that they were designed than to reject them. We're tempted many times to reject things because society says, oh, that's bad, or oh, that's good. Well, maybe I should do that. Maybe I shouldn't do this. So many things. Um, there's a, a lady I met this week and... and uh, She's a very outspoken individual, you know. She's uh, friendly as all get out and uh, just very outspoken. Kind of tell you exactly what's on her mind. And, and uh, we were talking and somehow, and, and you know, I'm a preacher. Oh, you're a preacher. And boy, she goes to church. She's been going to church for, I think, 150 years. And she reminded me. She said, yeah. And she said, and, 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 I, and we don't use wine in our communion. And I, I, was, I never said a word. I really didn't, folks. I didn't say a word. And she didn't even know where I go to church. I said, really? And she goes, yep, I don't partake. Jesus wouldn't have none of that. And I'm just sitting there going, just shut your mouth, Daniel Michael, because this could really turn out bad. And I said, so you're more spiritual than Jesus, aren't you? No, I didn't. I didn't say that. But, you know, all these things are going through my mind. That's not right. I'm going to do this in a right way. And I said, wow. I said, you know, I said, it's interesting because... There's no Jews in the days of the Lord Jesus Christ that would have agreed with that because they all drank wine for the Passover. And that was the Last Supper. Yet, Last Supper and last time they did it. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to win this one. You know, she's very steeped in tradition. And, 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 and I said, well, God created wine and He called it good. He actually said it was good and it was a gift to man and a, a blessing. And she goes, nope, it's wicked and evil. It's the devil's drink. I said, okay. And uh, 
There was no winning that one. Nothing I could say, no scripture I could take her to would change her heart or her mind in it. But she truly believed herself right in that aspect. Speaking to her, I further pursued our conversation and she was able to profess Christ very clearly and that she truly believed Him at some point in her life and repented. And, and, and I felt like this was a case of an uninformed conscience. Her conscience had been wounded by drunkard years and years earlier in her life. Someone who had taken a good gift of God and had abused it in such a way that it had injured her conscience and her conscience is now very uninformed. And you realize when you come across something like that in someone's life, you can be a jerk. Like I thought in my head the first time she said something. Or you can hear the whole story and discover that this is probably somebody who could be taught the truth of the Word of God over time. And she has a pastor, and it sounds like she has a very good pastor. It sounds like she has a pastor that loves her, which I, I was very thankful for. And so, maybe over time, and through ex explanation of the Word of God, but I wouldn't invite that lady over to my house and set a bottle of wine in front of her and insist she drink it. Wouldn't be any grace in me to do something like that. Well, just because your conscience is bothered by it doesn't mean my conscience is, so we're going to do this now. Here, belly up. No. That's an incorrect attitude that a believer might take in his life. And by the way, I'm not saying we can't use things wrongly that God has clearly called good. Most certainly. A fella could take a stick and turn it into a fishing pole and go catch fish for his family or he can take a stick and murder somebody with it. I mean, we know you can take good things and misuse them. This is why we need to commit to use all the things that God has given us for the purpose they were designed for. To bring glory to God. Your marriage is one of those things. Wine would be one of those things. You don't bring glory to God by being a drunkard. You don't bring glory to God by putting away your spouse. You don't bring glory to God by mocking and belittling your spouse. You love her. You love him. Let there be honor and caring there. We're in an age that does enough of the belittling of the good things that God has given us already. Church is mocked. Preachers are mocked. Fathers in the household are mocked. Having more than... 1.2 children is mocked. Homeschooling is looked at as... It, it, it used to be looked at as completely unusual. Then it became the norm and now it's becoming almost a sign of rebellion. It's really weird how, how the, the mentality of culture is taking such good things and painting them in such a different light. It's not baffling though. Because... God's not the author of confusion, but the devil certainly loves confusion, doesn't he? And I believe that this is the reason that Paul, following closely to the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, says in Titus 1.15, Under the pure all things are indeed pure. When our hearts are truly free to enjoy God's good gifts in the manner He intended, they are a great blessing to us. We, we receive blessings by enjoying those good things that God has given us. 
Now that rebukes the spirit of our age, which assumes this. This is the spirit of our age. It assumes that sinful indulgence is always more enjoyable than obedience to God. That if there's something that's good out here, to sinfully indulge in it would be better. To take it beyond the extremes that the Bible has declared. And our hearts, by the way, are free to enjoy the good things that God has given us, but only for His glory. Not for our selfish purposes. Now, of course, as I said, it rebukes the spirit of our age. John Calvin is the one that declared, Observe what a priceless privilege it is to be able to thank God with a quiet conscience, knowing that He wants us to enjoy the good gifts He has given us. Now, I think Paul says something here in verse 15 that ought to cause us to sit up and pay attention. Paul is very careful in his word usage here as he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He calls a group in verse 15 unto the def- them that are defiled. So there's a group that are called undefiled. And notice he also calls them unbelieving. And he goes further speaking of them to say that their mind and their conscience is defiled. This is, this is how he describes it. Look here. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. This is a severe state that they are in. A very dangerous state. And then in verse 16, he really lowers the boom. He says that they profess that they know God. You ever met anybody like that, that they're defiled? They, they're, they're really unbelieving because Jesus, you know, they tell you they love Jesus, but they don't want to obey Jesus. And Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. So they're defiled and they're unbelieving, but they say they know God. Oh, I love God. I love Jesus. Oh, I'm a Christian. I, I know somebody, my wife was given the gospel to at one point, and they told her, I mean, I remember them saying this to her. They said, well, me and God's got an understanding. Really? What understanding is that? Well, no, they had a false understanding of what God had actually said. That was the condition this lady was in as my wife was giving her the gospel. He goes on to say, in works they deny Him. So they're professing that they know Him. Their works say they deny Him. Being abominable and disobedient unto every good work, in fact, reprobate. Turned back against it even. So there's two things here. We see, uh, this is seen throughout the Scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament alike, that there's a profession that's made with their tongue. They say they know Jesus, but there's no evidence. There's no fruit of that. There may be little sprigs of fruit or plants that pop up, but they never end up producing godly fruit. And secondly, these folks are saying that you must add some ceremony. You must add some outward work to the grace of God... And Paul would say, that person is lost. Because these people he's talking about are the ones that have come in and said, Jewish fables have credence. That's what the verse says right before it, verse 14. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. 
These folks that were coming in, that, that, that he said, Titus, you're going to have to be aware of this as they're, they're all out there in, on this island of Crete. There's Judaizers, there's people that were Jewish, they got saved, they, 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 they're trying to live right, and they're being deceived by people telling them that you need to hang on to some of these things, these Old Testament laws in order to truly be right with God. Paul says in a word, they're lost. Those type people are unconverted. They're going to perish in their sins. Paul does not believe they're partly saved. If they say, yes, we believe in Jesus plus baptism, Paul would say, well, then you're lost. Yeah, but yes, we believe in Jesus, but you need to speak in tongues. Paul would say, well, then you're lost. If that's what you really believe salvation is, you don't believe the true gospel. Because the true gospel is not that. And we're a very nice bunch of people in here. And we don't want to talk about our Church of Christ neighbors. And we don't want to talk about our Roman Catholic um, uh, fellow employees because we don't want to cause anybody to be upset with us. But the truth is, and there's only one truth, is that that's not the gospel. The gospel is different than what they say they believe. He gives no ground for adding works to grace. A mixture of works and grace is deadly. Paul said in verse 15 that their mind and conscience is defiled. Now two things again here. Number one, their mind of course shows their understanding. When he says their mind, their knowledge of the circumstances that they are presently living in, Paul says that it's defiled. Have you noticed in our culture today that how people understand things is upside down? Everything from the, the satanic transvestitism that's going on in society. Everything from the acceptance of absolute perversion as normal. And then groups of people desiring to teach them to our children. Saying, this is normal. This is defiled. And Paul is making this very clear. Their minds are given over. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, he says, given over to a reprobate mind. A mind that has reprobated. It has turned away and locked out the truth. It won't have it. it. won't have any of it. And if you don't agree with me, I'll just scream at you rather than discuss it. Secondly, their conscience, first their mind, and their conscience, of course, has to do with what we, we oftentimes say it has to do with heart matters. But what it is is a very false view of justification by faith through grace. I know that precious lady that I spoke to that found out we use wine in our communion by default probably questions my conversion. And not because she's an evil person. And she doesn't believe that by not drinking wine in the communion makes her saved or more saved. She doesn't believe that. I, I, I asked her that very clearly. I said, so is that helping you get to heaven? Well, no, honey, it's only Jesus that gets me to heaven. Okay, good, that's good. I like to hear you say that. You know, but 
Because I drink wine in communion? And she goes, I don't know about that. Now there's a conscience issue there for sure. She believes that one is justified through Christ. But then she calls into question certain deeds that she has deemed as dangerous, though the Scriptures have declared them otherwise. So a deed a person may perform, and this is important, or something they may avoid, aids them in their salvation. It's not always just something that you do, like a good deed, but sometimes it's something I don't do. I don't do this and it merits salvific favor from God. Oftentimes we imagine that abstinence from something in fact purifies us. I become pure because I'm not doing this or that. We have some church members here who remember the church one time and they said it, it was they loved the church dearly but they began to set labels out on the dishes during their afternoon meal. They had, had an afternoon meal like we do that would say things like no gluten, no dairy, no sugar, no whatever, you know, because there were people there that had sensitivities to certain things and couldn't eat them and they thought that was a good idea. And literally those people began to separate to different tables after they would get their meals. And there became an even different serving area for that. And they began to ostracize people that had an allergy. Under the point that they began to be considered weaker brethren. And had to finally be addressed publicly from the pulpit by the pastor. Isn't it amazing how we can take some of the simplest things and turn them on their head and all of a sudden they become now a conscience issue. We never want to be like that. It shows a lack of maturity when something like that begins to happen in our life. And as Christians who say we want to be mature believers, we need to be willing to admit that when that happens to us. That was wrong of me. I was thinking wrongly about this. So it's a combination of the two in this person's mind as he's writing about this defiled and unbelieving person. It's a combination of these two that apparently warrant salvation. I avoid some things and I do some things and together with the grace of God I get to heaven. Now this statement is really a warning against our days that says to follow your heart. Because we hear that a lot of times. Walt Disney was famous. Jiminy Cricket would always say it in his song. You need to follow your heart. Cute little cricket singing, which is weird in the first place, but he would tell you to follow your heart. Our minds and our hearts can be tricked so easily. The mind and the heart can get defiled and therefore cannot be trusted to give us pure information. Hearts can be hardened against good things. I've had people who would have a root of bitterness spring up in their heart and they could not hear a thing that the preacher said from the pulpit. They would get their feelings hurt over something. Their conscience would get injured over something. Maybe they would believe something falsely because of half information. Maybe somebody didn't treat them exactly right. 
They get their feelings hurt, they get a little wound up, they get a little aggravated, and the next thing they can't even hear the preaching anymore because their ears are stopped up with all of this hardening of the heart. If we have an uninformed conscience, that is bad. But if the conscience is defiled, now we are in great danger. I would say we have no hope of doing right if our conscience is now defiled. Because we will choose the wrong every time. Salvation is for the whole man. It's not just that we get saved and get a ticket to go to heaven. But our lives ought to be starting to conform to the image of Jesus Christ upon our conversion. Do you understand the weight of this? Are you getting here what Paul is dealing with? Titus is about to start churches all over this island. And he's got to start with a foundation that people are not coming in with a halfway gospel. I mean, you think about this. You're, you're sent to a remote region and, and, and now appoint elders. But here's what you've got to watch for because it is such a characteristic of man to say, I love Jesus and this is what we must do to get to Jesus. Because we want to be so different. We want to have our own little ticks. We want to be something special. Somebody said to me one time, are you homeschooling church? I'm like, no. But nearly everybody homeschools in the church. Are you a reformed church? Far from it. We're reforming. If we were reformed, that means we've arrived, right? <laughs> no, we're trying our best to reform and conform to the image of Christ. Certainly there's some basic doctrines we believe that are found in Reformed doctrine, but we're trying to grow through obedience to the Word of God in every way. If someone begins to demand that a ritual or abstaining from something ritualistically combined with grace, do you understand that that's actually a doctrine of demons? This is what the Scripture defines that type of gospel as. He says it's not the gospel. In fact, it's a doctrine of devils. That's exactly what he said in 1 Timothy 4.1, wasn't it? Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith. What will happen? They'll give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. They'll heed those. By doing what? By adding works to grace or abstaining from something to get grace. Verse number 2 says their conscience will be seared, meaning they'll be unable to feel anything. There'll be no natural affection and the result will be that they will begin to demand abstinence. They'll finally say that you can't do this and you can't do that. I think it's very interesting in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter number 4, it says forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. Forbidding and commanding. That's the next step. Forbidding and commanding. Marks of authority that here's what you can and cannot do to be right with God. You cannot marry if you really want to be right with God and you have to abstain from meats. If you don't do these things, you won't be right. Paul is showing us 
that a demonic mind and conscience is really what is happening to the person who begins to combine outward works with grace. That's not the product of God, but a product of the devil. This is why it is so very important that you get this. Churches that demand such as this, Paul says, are of the devil. That's a harsh, harsh, hard thing in our society which says we need to be nice and we need to love everybody. But Paul is making it very clear. That's a doctrine of devils. It's a doctrine of devils. You've got to have a clean diet. You've got to eat Ezekiel bread. You've got to, you know, do this. You've got to do that. If you don't do that, you know, you're just not really pleasing the Lord. Because remember, what goes in is what counts, not what comes out. Really? This is... When you hear that, know that that is not a message from the Holy Spirit. Paul said the Spirit speaketh expressly. But when somebody tells you something opposite of that, that's the spirit of this world. That's a doctrine of devils. The devil would tell you. If you went to him and said, could you give me a pattern of how it ought to be within the church... They say, yeah, it's kind of like the Seventh-day Adventist right over here. Come over here to the Seventh-day Adventist and hear what they say about dietary standards. They say Jesus is the only way to heaven. But if you want to be right with them in their church, this is how you have to eat. And we take that and we just think, well, they're okay people. They're Christians too. Paul says, no, they're not. This is a doctrine of the devil. So in our text, Paul can say, Under the pure, all things are pure, but under them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. No matter what you do, unless you do it their way, it's not pure. They're not going to agree with it. You and I who are saved can say, All things are pure. They're to be used for the glory of God the way they were intended. And the defiled say, No, 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 nothing is pure. In fact, you need to abstain from good things to be right with God. And we often point at the Roman Catholic Church for combining works with grace, but it's very evident among some evangelical churches today that say, touch not, taste not, handle not. So many things declared off-limits that God never declared as off-limits. John Calvin, on speaking of all the things that the Roman Catholics demand for a person to be justified, described it this way. He said, Those who seek to justify men by their outward practice do no more than cover a stinking pile of filth with a linen sheet or a cloak. The filth, however, remains. It appears there has never been a time that this doctrine would be safe to lay aside. Paul urged Timothy to teach it. He told Titus he must teach it. During the Reformation it had to be taught and today it still has to be proclaimed because we as sinful humans are prone to forget history. We believe we have arrived. And the moment you think you have arrived and that you don't have to fight anymore for foundational truths, they're going to cut your Achilles heels and you will not be able to march in the Lord's army. They'll get you. If we're to be right with God, our cleansing is only at the cross of Christ. 
It's not because we've washed our hands correctly, but our hearts must be washed. God would not need to grant repentance and faith if we could figure out a way to get it ourselves. But He must grant it. Because we can't do anything to get it on our own. Verse 16 really wraps all this up. Um, Let me see if I can finish this up here tonight. Paul wraps it up with those sobering words where he says, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. It was was a writer, C.S. Lewis, who years ago wrote, "Of, Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Do you want to know how to be a hypocritical Christian? Paul gives the formula right here in verse 16. Start by professing that you know God. Start off with that. Say, I know the Lord. I love Jesus. Publicly declare you're a believer. Just let everybody know. Wear a t-shirt that says it. That's a good way. Now, if you've got a t-shirt that says you're a Christian on it, I'm not beating you up for that. I'm just telling you, if you would like to figure out how to be a hypocritical Christian, this is one way to start off. Let everybody know you're saved. So, we're going to have a baptism here in three weeks, three Sundays, the third, first Sunday in September. (laughs) Whatever day that is. We're going to have a baptism here. So let's get this guy started off right. Um, He's professed Christ publicly and he wants to be baptized. Secondly now, if he really wants to be a hypocritical Christian, he needs to start living like he actually doesn't know him. In fact, literally walk the razor's edge of a risky lifestyle, arguing all the time that any sin against God that he does is actually liberty even at the risk of destroying his brother. It's my liberty. I can do whatever I want. Jesus said he wants us to love everybody, so I'm going to love men like I would love women because I'm going to love everybody. James said in James 2.18, Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. He says, Show me thy faith without thy works. I will show you my faith by my works. I'll show you what's in me because I'm going to be obedient. It was our Lord and Savior who declared in Matthew 12, 33 that a tree is known by its fruit. And I'm afraid that many, like myself, who came out of staunch fundamentalism that demanded all sorts of man-made commandments, says Jewish fables, I would say... Baptist fables and commandments of men is what I learned. Dozens of things that were commandments of men that would mark me as being right with God. And the scary part is, is when you discover Christian liberty, the pendulum has a tendency to swing too far. A person discovers that, hey, wait a minute, I need to be obeying the commands of God, not under all these rules. Well, instead of going to God's Word and saying, what are God's rules? I just leave all rules. And I redefine the word liberty. Liberty defined as not the freedom to do whatever I want. That's not true biblical liberty. Christian liberty is the freedom to obey God. That's what you get when you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. 
where you could not obey God before. You can now obey Him because you have the power of God to do it. There was a point in your life you kept trying to obey God and you just kept falling on your face. God saves you. He empowers you. He fills you with the Holy Spirit. And now I can be obedient to God. That's true liberty. Liberty isn't I can do whatever I want, even crushing my brother with my freedoms. Paul described Christian liberty in the most beautiful way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. This is what he said. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are not the same people. Once God saves us, we begin looking like our Lord. I quote from Richard Phillips on his commentary in Titus where he declares this. He said, If there is one kind of liberty we are known for, let it be our delight in the freedom we have in Christ to draw near to God in the beauty of holiness, giving Him praise from sincere hearts and growing in our knowledge of His glory and grace. Every other form of liberty pales before this greatest of all freedoms. And it is our freedom to know and be loved by God that we should be His most highly treasured and precious loved one. Can you imagine thinking of liberty in that aspect? I've got liberty. I've got liberty to delight in freedom from sin and draw near in the beauty of your holiness. That's the liberty I have. This does not mean that you cannot make proper use of good things that God has made, but never use those liberties as a stumbling block. To the pure, all things are indeed pure. And it puzzles us sometimes when some cannot grasp it. I immediately thought of this dear Christian lady, this elderly lady, why can't she see that? I get that puzzlement about me. But it's so true that we grow in grace and knowledge. I'm not, I don't believe the same things today that I believed a year ago in the same way. I hope that I've grown in holiness before God over the past year. And He's changed my perception of things. At one time I thought, that eh, doesn't matter. Today it matters for the glory of God. Maybe there were some things that were a big deal to me that God has said, that's not a big deal. Leave your brother alone. Quit running behind him. Hit him over the head with that. I've said it time and time again. I do not mind... A weak conscience in a brother. Somebody wants to join our church and they have a weak conscience over a matter that our church may practice openly and freely. I don't have a problem with them joining our, our assembly. But they can't make their weak conscience a law unto me. But I don't want to remain in a weak conscience. If I have a weak conscience, I want to study to show myself approved before God 
to really know the freedom in Christ. That the weak in conscience might be informed with the liberating truth of Christ and that they could joy in all that God has made. I'll stand on my Christian liberty, liberty, but I'll never do it. I'll never pursue self-indulgence for the sake of indulgence itself. If I stand on Christian liberty, I want to do it for the glory of God, that He's glorified. Keep in mind, every liberty we have in Christ can be a hook for a weak conscience. There can be a thousand things that you've got liberty in Christ in that others will grab a hold of and say, no, 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 it can happen. But our liberty, rather than causing people to be upset, ought to be revealing how good and gracious God is. You have that sweet spirit that would make them say, well, normally I get into a fight with people that don't believe exactly like me, but you've been very gracious. I see Christ in you. When we give thanks for food, and you should always give thanks for food. Don't be ashamed to give thanks for food. Somebody comes to your home and it is your family's practice to bow at the table and pray. Don't say because the guests that are here in my home are not Christian or they don't pray, we will not pray. Include them in that beautiful and wonderful liberty and command that God has given us to give thanks for all these good things. Be obedient in that aspect. Whether it's giving thanks for food or maybe just for good company. Maybe it's beautiful artwork. I'm not talking about the pornography that's of the Renaissance era of nude bodies and naked angels and all of these things. I'm not talking about the stuff that's declared as art. But I'm talking about God-honoring art. Music, wine, whatever it is, remember all of these things are pale reflections of the glory that awaits us when we look upon His face. Don't think that your liberty in one of those things is so important that you would throw somebody under the bus just to have your way. Be loving, be gracious and kind. Our real treasures, dear saints, are in heaven where moth nor rust can corrupt. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be as well. So if you're ready to destroy somebody for meats and drink here on earth, it tells me where your heart is. Let us rejoice in the good things God's given us and enjoy them fully for His glory. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your kindness in giving us an hour to pause and read the Scriptures together, to sing, to pray, and then to hear the Word of God opened and preached. I pray that we would go away from here desiring greatly to honor You and to glorify You and to rejoice in all the good things You've given us and to thank You for the liberty we have in Christ. Lord, help our liberty to be a strengthening aspect to our fellowship here and to never be a stumbling block or to be used as a, a rod to pummel someone with. May You be glorified in all of our actions. Carry us through this night and into tomorrow. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.